Section six of Mrs. Shelley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Shelley by Lucy Maddox Brown Rossetti. Chapter three, part two. In eighteen ten, Shelley removed to University College, Oxford, after an enjoyable holiday with his family, during which he found time for an experiment in authorship, his father authorizing a stationer to print for him. If only, instead of this, his father had checked for a time these immature productions of Shelley's pen, the youth might have been spared banishment from Oxford and his own father's house, and all the misfortune and tragedy which ensued. Shelley also found time for a first love with his cousin Harriet Grove. This also the unfortunate printing facilities apparently squashed. There is some discussion as to whether he left Eton in disgrace, but anyway the matter must have been a slight affair, as no one appears to have kept any record of it. And should one of the masters have recommended the removal of Shelley from such uncongenial surroundings, it would surely have been very sensible advice. Oxford was, in many respects, much to Shelley's taste. The freedom of the student life there suited him, as he was able to follow the studies most to his liking. The professional lectures, chiefly in vogue, on divinity, geometry, and history, were not the most to his liking. History, in particular, seemed ever to him a terrible record of misery and crime, but in his own chambers he could study poetry, natural philosophy, and metaphysics. The outcome of these studies, advanced speculative thought, was not, however, to be tolerated within the university precincts, and unfortunately for Shelley his favorite subjects of conversation were tabooed. Had it not been for one light-hearted and amusing friend, Thomas Jefferson Hogg, a gentleman whose acquaintance Shelley made shortly after his settling in Oxford in the Michaelmas term of 1810, this friendship like all that Shelley entered on, was intended to endure forever, and as usual, Shelley impulsively for a time threw so much of his own personality into his idea of the character of his friend as to prepare the way for future disappointment. Hogg was decidedly intellectual, but with a strong conservative tendency, making him quite content with the existing state of things, so long as he could take life easily and be amused. His intellect, however, was clear enough to make him perceive that it is the poet who raises life from the apathy which assails even the most worldly-minded and contented, so that he in his turn was able to love Shelley with the love which is not afraid of a laugh, with the possibility of which no friendship, it has been said, can be genuine. Many of the charming stories, giving a living presence to Shelley while at Oxford, preserved by this friend, here we meet with him taking an infant from its mother's arms while crossing the bridge with Hogg, and questioning it as to its previous existence, which surely the babe had not had time to forget if it would but speak. But alas, the mother declared, she had never heard it speak, nor any other child of its age. Here comes also the charming incident of the torn coat, and Shelley's ecstasy on its having been fine-drawn. These and such like amusing anecdotes showed the genuine and unpedantic side of Shelley's character, the delightfully natural and lovable personality which is ever allied to genius. With the fun and humor were mixed long readings and discussions on the most serious and solemn subjects. Plato was naturally a great delight to him. He had a decided antipathy to Euclid and mathematical reasoning, and was consequently unable to pursue scientific researches on a system. But his love of chemistry and his imaginative faculty led him to wish, in anticipation for the forces of nature to be utilized for human labor, etc. Shelley's reading and reading powers were enormous. He was seldom without a pocket edition of one of his favorite great authors, whose works he read with as much ease as the modern languages. This delightful time of study and ease was not to endure. Shelley's nature was impelled onwards as irresistibly as the mountain torrent, 
and as with it all obstacles had to yield, he could not rest satisfied, with reading and discussions with Hogg on theological and moral questions, and being debarred debate on these subjects in the university. He felt he must appeal to a larger audience, the public, and consequently he brought out, with the cognizance of Hogg, a pamphlet entitled The Necessity of Atheism. This work actually got into circulation for about twenty minutes, when it was discovered by one of the fellows of the college, who immediately convinced the bookseller that an auto de fe was necessary, and all the pamphlets were at once consigned to the back kitchen fire. But the affair did not end there. Shelley's handwriting was recognized on some letters sent with copies of the work, and consequently both he and Hogg were summoned before a meeting in the common room of the college. First Shelley and then Hogg declined to answer questions, and refused to disavow all knowledge of the work, whereupon the two were summarily expelled from Oxford. Shelley complained bitterly of the ungentlemanly way they were treated, and the authorities, with equal reason, of the rebellious defiance of the students. Yet once more we must regret that there was no one but Hogg who realized the latent genius of Shelley, that there was no one to feel that patience and sympathy would not be thrown away upon a young man free from all the vices and frivolities of the time and place, whose crime was an inquiring mind, and rashness in putting his views into print. Surely the dangers which might assail a young man thus thrown on the world and alienated from his family by this disgrace might have received more consideration. This seems clear enough now, when Shelley's ideals have been extolled even in as well as out of the pulpit. So now we find Shelley expelled from Oxford and arrived in London in March 1811, when only eighteen years of age, alone with Hogg to fight the battle of life, with no previous experience of misfortune to give ballast to his feelings but with a brain surcharged with mysteriously imbibed ideas of the woes of others and of the world, a dangerous age instead of conditions for a youth to be thrown on his own resources. Admission to his father's house was only to be accorded on the condition of his giving up the society of Hogg. This condition, imposed at the moment when Shelley considered himself indebted to Hogg for life, for the manner in which he stood by him in the Oxford ordeal, was refused. Shelley looked out for lodgings without result, till a wallpaper representing a trellised vine apparently decided him was twenty pounds borrowed from his printer to leave oxford shelley is now settled in london unaided by his father a small present of money sent by his mother being returned as he could not comply with the wishes which she expressed on the same occasion from this time the march of events or of fate is as relentless as in a greek drama for already the needful woman had appeared in the person of harriet westbrook a schoolfellow of his sisters at their Clapham school. During the previous January, Shelley had made her acquaintance by visiting her at her father's house, with an introduction and a present from one of his sisters. There seems no reason to doubt that Shelley was then much attracted by the beautiful girl, smarting though he was at the time from his rupture with Harriet Grove. But Shakespeare has shown us that such a time is not exempt from the potency of love shafts. This visit of Shelley was followed by his presenting Harriet Westbrook with a copy of his new romance, St. Irvin which led to some correspondence. It was now Harriet's turn to visit Shelley, sent also by his sisters with presents of their pocket-money. Shelley, moreover, visited the school on different occasions, and even lectured the schoolmistress on her system of discipline. There is no doubt that Harriet's elder sister, with or without the cognizance of their father, a retired hotel-keeper, helped make meetings between the two. But Shelley, though young and a poet, was no child, and must have known what these dinners and visits and excursions might lead to and although the correspondence and conversation may have been more directly upon theological and philosophical questions, it seems unlikely that he would have discoursed thus with a young girl unless he felt some special interest in her. Besides, 
Shelley need not have felt any great social difference between himself and a young lady brought up and educated on a footing of equality with his own sisters. It is true that her family acted and encouraged him in a way incompatible with old-fashioned ideas of gentility, but Shelley was too prone at present to rebel against everything conventional to be particularly sensitive on this point. In May, Shelley was enabled to return to his father's house, through the mediation of his uncle, Captain Pilford, and henceforth an allowance of two hundred a year was made to him. But there had been work done in the two months that no reconciliations or allowances afterwards could undo, for while Shelley was bent on proselytizing Harriet Westbrook, not less for his sister's sake than for his own, Harriet, in a schoolgirl fashion, encouraged by her sister and not discouraged by her father, was falling in love with Shelley. How were the bourgeois father and sister to comprehend such a character as Shelley's, when his own parents and all the college authorities failed to do so? If Shelley were not in love, he must have appeared so, and Harriet's family did their best by encouraging and countenancing the intimacy to lead to a marriage, and naturally having Harriet's interests more at heart than Shelley's. However, the fact remains that Shelley was a most extraordinary being, an embryo poet, with all a poet's possible inconsistencies, the very brilliancy of an intellectual spark in one direction, apparently quelling it for a time in another. In most countries and ages, a poet seems to have been accepted as a heaven-sent gift to his nation. His very crimes, and surely Shelley did not surpass King David in misdoing, have been the lacrimirum, giving terrible vitality to his thoughts, and so reclaiming many others ere some fatal deed is done. But in England, the convention of at least making a show of virtues which did not exist, perhaps a sorry legacy from Puritanism, will not allow the poet to be accepted for what he really is, nor his poetry to appeal on its own showing to the human heart. He must be analyzed and vilified, or whitewashed in turn. At any rate, Shelley was superior to some of the respectable vices of his class, and one alleged concession of his father was fortunately loathsome to him. These that he, Sir Timothy, would provide for as many illegitimate children as Percy chose to have, but he would not tolerate a mesalliance. To what a revolt of ideas must such a code of morality have led in a fermenting brain like Shelley's? Were the mothers to be provided for likewise, and to be considered more by Shelley's respectable family than his lawful wife? We fear not. A visit to Wales followed, during which Shelley's mind was in so abstracted a state that the fine scenery, viewed for the first time, had little power to move him, while Harriet Westbrook, with her sister and father, was only thirty miles off, at Abbotsworth. A hasty and unexplained retreat of this party to London likewise hastened the return of Shelley. Probably the father began to perceive that Shelley did not come forward as he had expected, and so he wished to remove Harriet from his vicinity. Letters from Harriet to Shelley followed, full of misery and dejection, complaining of her father's decision to send her back to school, where she was avoided by the other girls, and called an abandoned wretch for sympathizing or corresponding with Shelley. She even contemplated suicide. It is curious how this idea seems to have constantly recurred to her, as in the case of some others who have finally committed the act. Shelley wrote, expostulating with the father. This probably only incensed him more. He persisted. Harriet again addressed Shelley in despair, saying she would put herself under his protection and fly with him. A difficult position for any young man, and for Shelley most perplexing, with his avowed hostility to marriage, and his recent assertions that he was not in love with Harriet. But it must be put to Shelley's credit that having intentionally or otherwise led Harriet on to love him, he now acted as a gentleman to his sister's school friend, and influenced to some extent by Hogg's arguments in a different case in favor of marriage, he at once determined to make her his wife. He wrote to his cousin Charles Grove, announcing his intention and a pending arrival in London, saying that, as his own happiness was altogether blighted, 
He could now only live to make that of others, and would consequently marry Harriet Westbrook. On his arrival in London, Shelley found Harriet looking ill and much changed. He spent some time in town, during which Harriet's spirits revived, but Shelley, as he described in a letter to Hogg, felt much embarrassment and melancholy. Not contemplating an immediate marriage, he went into Sussex to pay a visit to Field Place and to his uncle at Cuckfield. While here he renewed the acquaintance of Miss Hitchener, a schoolmistress of advanced ideas, who had the care of Captain Pilfold's children. To this acquaintance we owe a great number of letters which throw much light on Shelley's exalt character at this period, and which afford most amusing reading, as usual with Shelley. He threw much of his own personality into his ideas of Miss Hitchener, who was to be his eternal, inalienable friend, and to help to form his lovely wife's character on the model of her own. All these particulars are given in letters from Shelley to his friends, Charles Grove Hogg and Miss Hitchener. To the latter he is very explanatory and apologetic, but only after the event. Shelley had scarcely been a week away from London when he received a letter from Harriet, complaining of fresh persecution and recalling him. He at once returned, as he had undertaken to do if required and then resolved that the only thing was for him to marry at once. He accordingly went straight to his cousin Charles Grove, and with twenty-five pounds borrowed from his relative Mr. Medwin, a solicitor of Horsham, he entered on one of the most momentous days of his life, the twenty-fourth or twenty-fifth August, 1811. After passing the night with his cousin, he waited at the door of the coffee-house in Mount Street, watching for a girlish figure to turn the corner from Chapel Street. There was some delay, but what was to be could not be averted, and soon Harriet— fresh as a rosebud, appeared. The coach was called, and the two cousins and the girl of sixteen drove to an inn in the city to await the Edinburgh mail. This took the two a stage farther on the fatal road, and on August 28 their Scotch marriage is recorded in Edinburgh. The marriage arrangements were of the quaintest, Shelley having to explain his position in want of funds to the landlord of some handsome rooms which he found. Fortunately, the landlord undertook to supply what was needed, and they felt at ease in the expectation of Shelley's allowance of money coming. But this never came, as Shelley's father again resented his behavior, and took that easy means of showing as much. End of Part 2 of Chapter 3